0: Not Amati, she is Parker Professor at Stanford University in Finance and Economics, uh, has a shingle at the Engineering Department as well, and far more importantly, put out a wonderfully uh, controversial and smart effort with Martin Helwig, The Banker's New Clothes, What's Wrong with Banking and What to Do About It. Professor Amati, wonderful to have you back. Again, I want to go to a Charles Weiplotz essay in VoxEU. Politically acceptable debt restructuring in the eurozone, and I want to vamp that right over to banking. Is it, it seems now in 2014 we're really in search of an end game for banking that's politically acceptable? Give us an update where are we in banking reform?
1: Well, it's different in different countries, so you have to kind of distinguish. Europe is struggling with a massively big. Uh, banking system that they kind of have to manage and first kind of Look in the eye and sort of see what's there and dare it uh, and that's kind of the big thing, so they have a new attempt to have a union about banking and to supervise them somehow from the center of at least the eurozone or maybe the entire euro and that's a bit very challenging because there are a lot of very big banks and a lot of small banks and altogether too much banking and so where we are is not very good where from where I come from, which is. Uh, we haven't quite uh, dealt with all the losses, not even in this country, and we haven't set straightened out the rules and regulations as well as we could. And so the question right now is what they're going to do in the asset quality review in Europe, what's the new supervision going to look like, and then all the implementations of various laws and rules around here.
2: Can you at least say they're making progress, though, in the sense that um – Europe being many countries as opposed to the United States, many different banking regimes, a lot of sovereign questions. Uh, At least they're tackling the issue.
1: Well, they're saying that they're tackling the issue. So, right now, you had statements from their new supervisors saying some banks will fail. It's quite clear to everybody looking there that, you know, their previous stress tests were a joke. Banks failed immediately after their stress tests, and Cyprus passed the stress test, and, you know, Dexia Dexia passed the stress test.
0: Well, for American listeners— there's this mystery. I mean, Dodd Frank—we're finally going to implement it, and Bloomberg LP and our terminal business has done a lot in the swaps area. and this revolution that's coming, we're waiting for. Are we going to see a revolution that's visible to our listeners among our major banks, or our regional banks, or our small banks?
1: I don't think there's a revolution coming in any way. I think that it's it more likely is. Is not that much different than what it what it was. There's a lot of back and forth. People kind of get tired of it. They wear out the regulators with all kinds of things. And so the there are, I call them tweaks. A lot of these things. And of course there are movements in banking. There's competition in payment system. There's what's going to happen um, to to small banks versus big banks and all of that. So, I, but I don't think it's going to be
0: a it, revolution. It goes, Mike, to a chapter in Professor Admati's book, Paid to Gamble. Oh yeah, I mean that's the heart of the matter.
2: Well, Hard you essentially the note that in the, the the paperback edition. This is shameless plug time coming out, and you uh, got a new preface to that. And you note that the 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 division line seems to be that the, the bankers feel that risk is in an inherent part of their strategy, not uh, I- instead of minimizing it. That the more risk you take, it may be better for the economy.
1: Well I come from an area that where people take lots of risk much more risk you could say in, in innovations that you know often fail than in banking. The problem with the risk in banking is that it's taken with so much board money. That's the problem with the that risk. That's what ma- what magnifies well, it, but, that but, risk but, the leverage.
0: Is this is the, this is the heart of the matter yep. and this is may I editorialize this is the simple ad uh, lecture which is de-leverage. Yep. Are we deleveraging?
1: Well, not in a way that, that I would like the banks would, would do it the way they might like or they will threaten that they do it in a way that we don't like. But fundamentally, the biggest problem is your behaviors when you're in this permanent distress situation, which is they always live there, which is you love risk because disproportionately you get the upside and the downside is not yours, especially if you get cheap funding.
2: You uh, write in the preface about uh, the reaction to your book coming out and how you were snubbed at dinner parties by bankers and things like that. Um, you also know that a best-selling textbook um, ignored uh, what you said, and and I'm I'm curious as to the the canards that are still being published out there. Uh, what are people still saying that that uh, that we're getting wrong that we, um, it, it not just don't understand, but we we should have learned from the crisis.
1: Well, it's a truism in financial markets that risk and return are inter- intertwined. If you're going to create value, you better create value relative to the risk you take. Anybody can sort of take take risk and get supposedly appropriate return or even worse than they should get and so to say i got an hour e is is without saying how much risk i've taken that's mm-hmm. completely crazy and then you go to the compensation and how when they take the risk First, there is some kind of a measured right. earnings or measured return, which is an accounting thing. And then forget the right. clawbacks when it doesn't work out.
0: It's wonderful to have you here. You look so unloved in Davos. Nobody would speak to you. They would yes. like they, You would be near the coffee stand in the Congress Hall, and there would be this circle around and not a body <laughs> not of true. CEOs and banking people. <laughs> That's like, not Who true. are you? No, I'm kidding. I, I, what I, a, wonder- I have a
1: few people want to yeah, talk to What me. a wonderful <laughs> Thank book. You.
0: Uh, um, a lot coming up, particularly on February 19th. We're brought to you by Invesco, and on February 19th, you can join me for a live webcast with Invesco's investment leaders. We'll be discussing how to confront traditional challenges with alternative investments. Register now for that event, February 19th. You can do that now at Invesco.com slash interactive. Mike, help me here. You're (laughs) going to ask the next question. I'm not on speaking terms with Professor Anat Amadi. Here we go. Biases and willful blindness. This is from the new preface to her, her book. Biases and willful blindness are also evident in the media. Bloomberg Surveillance frequently quotes bankers, policymakers, <laughs> and experts that. without challenging the claims or asking a balancing opinion. She goes right after us in the Yeah, well, true. I think she's talking about you. Yeah. <laughs> right after us. You you really take a shot at the media though. Seriously, what does the media get wrong? Well, uh,
1: sometimes you read the media and uh, stuff that they quote or stuff that they say is just completely wrong.
0: I, I will agree with that, but I think there have been voices in the media. Yes. I might point out one M. McKee, yes. back in his Ute who was way out in front with this.
1: I agree. I have some of my best friends in the media hence You on have your friends in the media. Yeah, like <laughs> the <that's laughs> like, surveillance break like, exclusive this, right there in
0: this in this room in this room. I, I I have to admit, Mike, that it, it's fascinating to hear the criticism of the media, but Mike, I'd also go back to the idea that the banks have to deal with the speed of the media today. Well it's a and, different dialogue.
2: And there's a as as Anat points out, there's access journalism where people are afraid to ask the questions of, of the bankers.
1: There well, are the sources, and if you have, so I, I'm just reading the the book, the new book from uh, Dean Columbia. Yeah, yeah. So I was just reading it on the flight here. The watchdog that didn't bark. So that's about business mm-hmm. journalism, and it it makes this clear distinction between access reporting and accountability reporting, and basically laments the the decline. He's basically. Arguing that from 2004 to 2007 yeah. in particular, the, it was just they didn't see what was right. coming and it was right there.
0: And I want to, my method on this, Mike, which I think is very important for all of our listeners worldwide, is if I'm on with a CEO particularly, I'll give them their message question up front. They've got something to sell, uh, you know, they got earnings or whatever, fine. But then you've got to come in with a question about the tension of the moment. Whether it's Brian Moynihan or Jamie Dimon or some industrialist from the middle part of the country,
2: well, you, do, you never have to be rude to people, but you do not, have to hold their feet to the fire.
1: I don't have a problem. I was in Davos against the, you know, against in a debate with the CEO of Barclays and the chair of HSBC. And it was like, okay, you know, you speak from your perspective, but there is a distinction between. I'm not even. I said to them, and I said to to, to them before and after that. I gave my book to Anthony Jenkins as well, and he graciously took it and said he was interested in it. But um, the fact of the matter is that when they do things that privately are good for them, they can actually harm other people, and but that's the same as other businesses the, the, that might
0: do that. The distillate of your book is still right back to Simon Johnson 101, which is it's about leverage.
1: Well that that's that it's about leverage
2: and it's about politics of leverage all right i want to um we would be remiss if we didn't ask about janet yellen and her role in all this now because yesterday the she got very high marks for her performance during the humphrey hawkins testimony yesterday except for the part where she talked about regulation and people say she looked uncomfortable she looked unsure of herself are you concerned that uh, we now have this new regulatory structure set up under Dodd Frank with the Fed as the primary uh, watchdog, that uh, it will fall short, that either there is an ignorance or an unwillingness on the part of the new Federal Reserve Chair and those underneath her?
1: Well, I'm hopeful that new faces there, such as Yellen and Stan Fisher. For example, who I uh, I think are open-minded people uh, would take a look at this. I think the Fed has a mandate under Dodd-Frank, especially under Title I, to question whether the policies that they have are working out. For example, if there is still the perception that uh, you know there is a too big to fail problem, and that it's not a solution to rely on Title II. Resolution that that's not what's going to save us, that they better do something on Title I, and that the living wills are giving them a, an answer, no, they cannot fail with under bankruptcy without harming.
2: You've got to get out in front of the problem. You can't say, well, we've got a problem, we've got a way to deal with it once it happens.
1: It's not going to be fun when it happens.
0: One of the distinctions of this, and this is inside baseball, but let's go there, is this idea of raising equity. Bankers, as a general rule, are reluctant to raise equity where people making spark plugs in name the state are not reluctant to raise equity. Why is that?
1: Well, this is the position always of of somebody who has a lot of debt, that they don't like to raise equity. They're leveraged 16 to 1. Because the debt is already in place. And so by raising equity, you're giving a gift to creditors. That's like prepaying your mortgage when you might... Default on it. So, if you're mm-hmm. a limited liability. So, when from that perspective, plus add the subsidies of debt, me- meaning that debt is easy for you to the point that, you know, creditors, for example, depositors, don't ask too many questions of these banks, whereas equity right. investors are going to ask lots and lots of questions on any unsecured one. So, they'd rather get the next person to lend to them however they can. So, that's their perspective. But you see, you're right. F- one thing about raising equity is there's equity that they have sitting there that they want to rush to pay out. That already tells you there's a problem because payouts is really where the action is. Warren Buffett never pays out. So mm. invest it for your shareholders. As long as debt is paid, it's still the money of your shareholders. Just don't do something completely stupid with it. But when Jamie Dimon said three years ago, if if we don't return capital, where bankers will do stupid things, that ranks about about among the most outrageous statement any CEO can make. Why would you do stupid things with anybody money, equity or debt?
2: Uh, in- interesting point. <laughs> Not Thank you for being with us and coming in. Um, she obviously works at Stanford and uh, has to head back there, so we hope she gets there through the, yeah, within through the, storm. the storms.
0: Is, is your book Beach Reading? Have you tested this yet? Can people read your, your book <laughs> on the, be- the paperback edition?
1: The paperback is coming in a couple of weeks. With a new preface. Uh, with just a new preface and some Tweaks, but we did not change the content of it as as we explain, any event that happened in the last year doesn't change the basic conclusion of, of the book. Right. We and go so to, it just might be cheaper.
0: We go to surveillance <laughs> summer list uh, reader John Tucker, who is on the beach in New Jersey. Would you be reading Anata Mahdi and Martin Helwig on the beach this summer?
2: Oh absolutely. I don't have a cow <laughs> She's looking around for this. Does it have pictures? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, she can connect the dots. Well here's what I here's what I would say about the bankers' new class close. Um, Tom and I try to hold people's feet to the fire, but don't take our word for it. Go ahead, read the book, you read, and you decide.
3: The challenge in Europe has morphed, you know, from uh, two, three years ago when it was all about sovereign risk. And right now, uh, what happened then was was sovereign risk impacted on the banking system, and that's caused a a capital adequacy problem in banks, and they're pulling credit back. Now, it's spun around the other way. And for 2014, what we're looking at is we're looking at the banks in Europe under stress and their problems, putting pressure on the sovereigns. And the trigger here is well, the trigger, of course, is underlying it. The banking system is, is, is undercapitalized by most standards. But the trigger is the ECB's asset quality review, which is going to be accomplished by November.
0: These are real stress tests.
3: Well, there's not even a stress test yet. It's just the asset quality, just looking at how many loans on the books are good and what's the probability of getting paid back with no stress. And that's going to affect 128 banks. And some banks are going to fail. They've told us that. They said it's not a test unless somebody fails. That's what Axel Weber said at Davos. So when banks fail, they have to be fixed and there's no mechanism in place to fix them. So this is kind of like jumping off the boat without some flotation device. So Carl, where can the money come from to recapitalize the banks? Well, it's got to come from taxpayer revenue. It's got to come just like TARP did, right? From uh, raising money from the public, whether it's through selling bonds and deficits, or whether it's through, um, um, you know, taxpayer revenue. You know, you recall that TARP was a, a pretty clever scheme in retrospect. It made money ultimately for the government, and almost all of the investments that it put cash into paid the taxpayer back. The same scenario could happen in Europe. This doesn't have to be seen as deficit finance for economic recovery. The stuff that the Germans are constitutionally prohibited. from doing but what's the prospect that the money for a bank in a smallish country a weak country could come from from the stronger countries of Europe, cross-border like zero, flows. zero, right? Absolutely zero. And mm-hmm. that's why it's time for policymakers to start looking at instead of acting in a mutualized way, instead of acting well, as a union, to act in unison as independent governments to find the resources as independent countries. They can be collegial, and their national bank supervisors can talk to each other, but countries okay. have to start building but, that but reserve. But frame right
0: this out. critical question for me, and I say this for all my American uh, listeners that are like, okay, we've heard this story for four years And everything continues. You know, the planes to Paris are packed. I mean, I guess is how I'd put it. Draghi saved the day. Was that a tangible policy that President Draghi made with the ECB, or was it a Band-Aid, and the Band-Aid's going to be ripped off and lost here at some point?
3: Well, it's a bluff. You know, the OMT. Draghi made a bu- bu- bluff. A bluff. And the bluff convinced the markets that everything is okay. So yes. right now we're in nirvana, as you to use your word, okay? Everybody thinks Europe is fixed because Draghi says he's going to do whatever it takes. But if and when the time comes for him to do whatever it takes, the market is going to realize he doesn't have very much he can do. Do Do
0: you have a week of one year that you can tell us when this is going to occur? Is this like a 2014 thing, or is it
3: out there? Keep your eye on November 2014. That's when the ECB's Asset Quality Review is going to be published. And in the months leading up to that, investors are going to start to speculate which banks are going to pass and which banks aren't. And that's going to cause Upset in the funding of these banks, upset in the share prices of these banks, and that's going to push over potentially to uh, solving problems. Peter
0: Coy, you actually worked at Davos, unlike me. For me, it was one big play fest. But did you hear these concerns at Davos that Dr. Weinberg brings up?
3: I think people were living in a dream world, and I still don't understand. Usually markets are forward-looking. If they see there are going to be problems coming in November, they react to them now, and you would start to see the bond yields going up, the prices of – going down. It's not happening. What's going on there? Well, you heard Axel Weber at Davos on the second day, you know, in that presentation, is Europe fixed? And he said, well, he says, complacency is misplaced. Uh, by the way, Axel and I agree on absolutely nothing except for this. This is the first time in years that we've <laughs> ever agreed on anything. And he says, uh, complacency is misplaced. Banks still have problems, and they're yet to be fixed. And fixing them is going to cost the taxpayer money. And if you think that's not going to happen, then you're being delusional. Those mm-hmm. are almost his exact words. And I agree with him on that. I think that there are problems lurking Mm -hmm. in the banking system, and this is the year that the banking system problems come back to bite us.